But yes, it's good to be back. Pastor Juan, the other elders at High Point, greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so excited to, to be with you this morning. We're not going to, to cover all of John chapter 4 in the same amount of detail, so we're going to be moving expeditiously through certain portions of this text, but I think we'll, we'll get encouragement from uh, the story of the woman at the well. Against my better judgment, I want to begin by quoting a pop song. Um, John Mayer, you've probably heard of him, the, the, the guitarist and the singer-songwriter. If you haven't heard of him, I wouldn't recommend just going out and listening to some of his stuff. Some of it is uh, better than others. But he has an older song in his, uh, his, his collection called Something's Missing. And the, the, the chorus goes like this. Something's missing, and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing, and I don't know what it is. No, I don't know what it is at all. As Christians, I think the almost irresistible interpretation is to say, it's Jesus. That's what you're missing. And as you listen to the song, it it does sound like there's this God-shaped hole in his heart. But the part I want to key us in on is one of the verses. He says, I'm dizzy from the shopping mall. So he explains kind of going to the shopping mall. He says, I'm dizzy from going there. I searched for joy, but I bought it all. So he said, I went there looking for joy, but I ended up coming home with everything, right? And he says, it doesn't help the hunger pains and a thirst I'd have to drown first to ever satiate. So he's talking there about looking for joy and going to shopping malls, trying to to consume his way to joy and saying, the thirst is so great, I could consume it all and I'd drown before I'd ever get what's nagging at me, this unquenchable thirst, this hunger that won't go away. I think what John Mayer does in this song is he, he gets at this insatiable longing that all people have. You see, we all have a craving for satisfaction, for fulfillment. We're all looking for something to, to satisfy our hunger, for joy, for contentment, to quench our thirst for meaning, for significance. And human history is, is littered with examples of people searching for, for satisfaction, whether in power, in sex, in money, in other people, in approval. But as we turn to John chapter 4 this morning, if you haven't already turned in your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to work through this passage of Scripture. I think we'll see how Jesus provides a better answer than what we might find in, in pop culture and other places. Uh, I trust you're familiar with the Gospel of John, but just to to set the context a little bit, uh, what's helpful about John's Gospel is that he gives a purpose statement near the end of his book. So if you have any question about why John is writing, he tells you in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is is writing so that his readers would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that they would place their trust in Jesus as the Messiah, and that by believing they would have life. They would have eternal life, abundant life. They would have the very life that God in himself shares among the persons of the Trinity. Jesus came to, to make that life available to his people. A really easy way to think about the structure of John's gospel is to think John begins in his intro 
telling us who Jesus is. As readers, we know from the get-go, Jesus is the word who was with God in the beginning, who was God. He's the, the pre-existent one. He brought all things into being. And so as readers, we know that right off the bat. But the rest of his gospel is taking up with showing how Jesus in his earthly ministry manifests that glory for the people he kind of comes into contact with. So now turning to chapter 4, let me read verses 1 through 6 just to kind of set the context for our passage this morning. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So in John's gospel, Jesus regularly travels to Jerusalem for the, the Jewish festivals, the Passover. And in chapter 2, verse 13, we learn that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the Passover. In chapter 3, he's still there talking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, about the new birth. And he talks to, and we hear about John the Baptist, his testimony about Christ. And that brings us to chapter 4, where the Pharisees are starting to become more aware of Jesus. He's getting onto their radar a little bit. And so this causes Jesus to, to return and go back up north. But to, to get back to Galilee, where does he have to go? He has to pass through Samaria. So that's where we pick up for our text this morning. So we'll see. This is, I think, the main idea of this text. It's kind of a, a long one. But in John chapter 4, Jesus is the Savior of all who believe, even sinners and outcasts. And he offers lasting satisfaction to his people by opening a way for them to worship and serve the Father truly. I'll say that one more time. Jesus is the Savior of all who believe, even sinners and outcasts. And he offers lasting satisfaction to his people by opening a way for them to worship and serve the Father truly. We're going to unfold that in three main points. First, a greater gift verses 7 through 15, a greater gift. Second, we'll look at a deeper need, verses 16 through 26, a deeper need. And then third, we'll look at a better response, verses 27 and following, a better response. So let's look first at a greater gift. Look with me at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So the first thing to, to notice here in, in verses 7 through 9 is that the woman comes alone, and she comes in the middle of the day. And so it seems that this woman was maybe ostracized by her community. She was an outcast. She was looked down upon. And so whereas most people would draw water probably early in the morning or later on in the evening, she comes at the hottest part of the day by herself. And Jesus, he asks her for a drink of water. Presumably if the disciples were there, they would have drawn water for him, but they're off in town getting food. And so Jesus asks her for some water. But this request from Jesus, it comes as a surprise to the woman. She says, 
How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? And John adds this kind of parenthetical note, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, in, un, in order to understand the, the animosity between Jews and Samaritans, we have to know a little bit about the history, right? Samaria, as you'll remember, was the name of the northern kingdom of Israel, right? And though the nation of Israel was united as one kingdom under David and under his son Solomon, after Solomon's death, the Israelite kingdom splits into two. Jeroboam led ten tribes up in the north, and that became known as Samaria, while Rehoboam, Solomon's son, he led the remaining tribes in the south, which would later become known as Judah. And the northern kingdom, Samaria, you probably remember this date, 722 BC, they're led off into exile by the Assyrians. But when the Assyrians take them into exile, they settle other foreign people in the land. And so the, the Jews that remain in the land intermarry and mix with other foreign people. And that was by design. The Assyrians wanted to, to try and wipe out indigenous culture and to try and syncretize and mix it with other cultures. And so the Samaritans were, were viewed by Jews as, as ethnically and religiously compromised, right? They've intermarried with foreigners. They don't have pure blood in them. They have a, a syncretistic religious belief. The Samaritans only accepted the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. And so they, they, they didn't accept all of the Hebrew Bible. They erected a, a rival temple on Mount Gerizim around 400 BC. And so they have this whole alternate style of worship. And the Jews looked down on them. To be in contact with Samaritans was potentially to become ceremonially unclean. And so tension, hostility were the norm between these groups. But look at Jesus' response in verse 10. Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So here, Jesus raises the, identi the, uh, the issue of his identity. And the issue of Jesus and his identity is going to be a, a prominent theme throughout this whole passage. The woman's perception of who Jesus is, it changes and it grows and it it, it kind of, it develops as the story goes on. There's this process of gradual illumination and understanding. But Jesus here is saying, if you knew who you were talking to, you would be the one asking me for a drink, right? So what, is, what does Jesus mean here by living water? Well, he could just mean fresh water. Living water is just another way of saying running water. Water that is not stagnant. So that would obviously be important, especially here in the ancient world. But Jesus obviously is not just talking about physical water, right? He's, he's saying something beyond simply physical water. He's, he's drawing on Old Testament imagery. He's talking about God as the ultimate source of life, as the one who provides renewing, life-giving water through his grace and through the Holy Spirit. We might think, for example, of of Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, that says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So Israel not only rejected God, the source of all life, the one who, who brought blessing and who gave life through his word, but they also, they hewed out cisterns for themselves. They, they turned to idols. They turned to, to sin and rebellion, hoping that that would bring satisfaction and fulfillment. So God says, 
They've committed two wrongs. Not only have they rejected the source of life, living water, they've, they've gone after these broken cisterns. We could also think about Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8. It says, on that day, talking about that great and glorious day, it says, on that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem. And it's interesting, the next verse talks about the Lord being king over all the earth. And so living waters flowing out of Jerusalem is kind of in tandem with God reigning as king over all. And we see here God's kingdom extending even to the Samaritans. As one person puts it, the water here in John chapter 4 is the water of satisfying eternal life mediated by the Spirit that only Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world, can provide. But look with me at verse 11. We hear the, the Samaritan woman's reply in which she compares him to the patriarch Jacob, and she compares him unfavorably. She says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So again, the woman is at this point misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. Just like Nicodemus in chapter 3, she's thinking, physically, literalistically, she's saying, what are you going to draw water with? So she's thinking of physical realities. Jesus is talking on a spiritual plane. But then she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Surely, she reasons, you're not greater than the great patriarch, the one who provided water for himself, his sons, his livestock, and who even has still provided water all the way up to this day. But again, notice, Jesus' identity is what's forefronted here, right? We as readers know what the woman doesn't know. Jesus is, in fact, greater than their father Jacob, much greater, right? And the gift he offers is, is far greater than a well that provides them with running water. In the book of John, John is portraying Jesus throughout his gospel as one who is greater than all the various persons and institutions of the entire Old Testament era. We think, for instance, of chapter 1, verse 29. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's, he's the greater Passover Lamb who sacrificed for the sins of God's people. In chapter 1, verse 50, he tells Nathaniel, after he's demonstrated to Nathaniel supernatural knowledge, and Nathaniel is amazed that he saw him under the tree, Jesus says, you're going to see greater things than these, right? After cleansing the temple in chapter 2, Jesus suggests that he, in fact, is the greater temple and that his body will be raised in three days. In chapter 8, the Jewish leaders, they ask Jesus, are you greater than Abraham, our father? And what does Jesus reply? After a few verses, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And so we see this theme over and over again that Jesus' identity is the one who is greater than all that the Old Testament pointed forward to, all the persons and the institutions of the Old Testament. But look finally here in verses 13 through 15. Jesus clarifies what this living water is that he offers. Jesus says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. So in contrast to 
to Jacob's well that they're drawing from that can quench physical thirst for a limited time, and then you have to go back and do it again. Jesus says, I can satisfy a person's thirst forever. In John chapter 6, Jesus makes a similar point. He says, the fathers had manna in the wilderness, and they still died, right? But I'm the the true bread that comes down from heaven, and the, the bread that I offer is my flesh for the sake of my people to grant them eternal life. So here in verse 14, he says, this water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I think if we look at John chapter 7 and we compare that with this verse, we get more of an indication of what Jesus means here. In chapter 7, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And then in verse 37 of chapter 7, Jesus says this. On the last day, it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So we hear that same idea, rivers flowing out of one's heart of living water. But notice verse 39 of chapter 7. John gives this explanatory comment. He says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the living waters that Jesus gives are intimately connected with the Spirit, which cannot be poured out in full measure until Jesus dies and rises again, ascends to the right hand of the Father, and then pours out this heavenly gift on his people. But notice how the woman responds back in chapter 4. In verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water. But notice her reasoning. She says, So that I will not be thirsty or have to draw water again. So again, it's a little bit unclear what her understanding is at this point, but she seems to still be thinking mainly in physical terms. She says, Well, that'd be great. I'd never have to come back here and and draw water again. Right? So I wonder, if anyone here this morning, if any of you are thirsting or for true and lasting satisfaction? Have you tried to find joy and contentment in the various pleasures of this world? Perhaps you've tried to fill that void that you feel in your heart by throwing yourself fully into into your career or into your studies or maybe into parenting or into a relationship. I think the invitation that Jesus offers us in this passage is to look to him as the only one who can fully and finally satisfy your soul forever. Everything else that you drink, everything else that you eat, every other person or relationship, you'll be hungry again, you'll thirst again. But Jesus says here, he offers living water that will spring up in us to eternal life. And if you don't know who Jesus is, if you haven't experienced this eternal life that he offers, continue searching, continue coming to church, continue to ask questions. I know the the members of this church would be happy to answer your questions about Jesus continue reading the scriptures. But if you're a believer and you haven't been drinking deeply from the water that Christ gives, maybe you believe the gospel and yet you've, you've turned aside to broken cisterns, the call in this passage is to repent, to turn back to Christ as, as the fountain of living water. He's gracious and he's kind and he will satisfy your souls. So we've seen this greater gift that Jesus offers, but next we want to look at how this living water that Jesus gives is meant to cure 
a deeper need that we all have. Verses 16 through 26. Jesus' living water is meant to, to cure or remedy this deeper need that we all have. So look at verse 16. Jesus says, he says to the woman, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So this is kind of an abrupt shift in the conversation. Why does Jesus turn the conversation to the woman's private life? You know, why is he getting up all in her business, as some people might say? Well, the ensuing dialogue reveals that the man she's with is not her husband, that she's had five husbands previously. And whether she's had five husbands through some of them being deceased or through divorce or whatever it might be, the implication seems to be is that she's been, lived a promiscuous lifestyle and that she's a, an outcast and a sinner by really anyone's standards, right? So why does Jesus draw attention to this shameful part of her life, a part that surely she would want to keep hidden? Well, certainly it's so that he can reveal his supernatural knowledge. Obviously, he has knowledge about her that no one could know on a human level. But I think the more fundamental reason he does this is to expose her deepest need, which is the need for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus gently and yet deliberately exposes her sin to show that he came not merely to satisfy our felt needs, right? But he came to solve our biggest problem, which is our helpless state due to sin. In order to enjoy the living water that Jesus offers, a person has to be forgiven. They have to be cleansed of their sins by faith. And so we need the Lamb of God to take away our sin and our shame so that we can receive this inner renewal that's brought about by the Holy Spirit. But notice Jesus demonstrates here that he's full of grace and truth, as John says in John chapter 1. He's full of grace. He, he doesn't hold it over her. He, he graciously deals with her, and yet he, he is a God full of truth, and so he's not willing to, to brush aside her sin. He's not going to allow her sin to remain hidden, but he deals gently. He lovingly exposes it because that's what's keeping her from enjoying eternal life, fellowship with him, life with God forever. I wonder if there's private sin in your life this morning. I wonder if there's something that instantly popped into your mind when I said that. Whatever that is, that one thing that you, you would hope no one in this room would ever find out about, isn't that what Jesus exposes here of this woman? You know, all the people in the town know about her, but any stranger, she's like, well, he doesn't know. Here's a new start. If there's any sort of private sin like that in your life, I, I just commend to you to consider Jesus from these verses. Bring it to him. He already knows the sin that you have in your heart. He'll be merciful. Confess to him. He has good and wise purposes in exposing our sin he deals gently with us according to our frame. But listen to the woman's response in verse 19. The woman says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Upon hearing Jesus' words, the woman 
perceives something different about him. She perceives that he's a prophet. So again, we see this emerging sense of Jesus's identity is, is dawning on her. He's no longer just a Jewish man. Now he's a prophet. And yet, it's still a pretty generic title. She perceives that he knows something. There's, there's some bit of special insight or revelation maybe that God has given him. But she still is not fully all the way there to confessing him as the Messiah and the Christ. And in verse 20, we have, again, another pretty abrupt shift in the conversation, this time to the issue of worship. Some people interpret her words here as being an evasion. They're kind of a, a tactic to move the conversation along because Jesus has just brought up her sin and, and she doesn't want to deal with that. So she says, well, what about worship? I think that's possible, but I, I take her words to be more sincere than that. I think she perceives that Jesus is a prophet, and so she says, you're a prophet and you're a Jew. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about this issue that separates Jews and Samaritans. Maybe you have some, some special knowledge of it that we don't have. So she seems to have a, a sincere interest in these religious matters. But now we get to the heart of the passage, verses 21 to 24. Jesus does provide insight into the nature of true worship, but it surely is not exactly what she expected with her question. Verse 21, Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So instead of rendering a verdict on, on which mountain and which place is the proper place of worship, Jesus relativizes the entire idea of place as being really significant for worship. He says, the hour's coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem are people going to worship the Father. He's saying that hour is fast approaching when all of these questions will come, become essentially irrelevant. Now with the coming of Jesus in the flesh, worship is no longer tied to a specific place or sanctuary. Jesus, as we mentioned, is the true temple. He's now the access point to God. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In previous eras, people would go to the tabernacle or the temple to access God's presence, but now Jesus himself is the entry point and the gate to access with God. But notice this statement in verse 22. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. What does that mean? Well, here I think Jesus, he does side with the Jews insofar as God's revelation was given to them, insofar as God did reveal himself to Israel under the old covenant. So in other words, God gave to his covenant people promises, the law, the sacrificial system. He saved them from Egypt. He, he, he took them into exile for their covenant disobedience. All of this happened in his covenantal relationship with his people. He also sent Israel prophets. He, he gave them expectations about a Messiah who was to come. And so in all these ways, the path 
for the, the Savior to come was prepared through the Old Covenant and through the, the revelation made to the Jewish people. So Jews certainly had a, a truer, more firm, and stable knowledge of God than the Samaritans. The Samaritans were ignorant in some sense, outside of his saving revelation. And it's the stream of revelation in the Old Testament that points forward to Christ, right? Apart from the Old Testament, it's impossible to say all we need to say about who Jesus is and what he came to do, right? When all the New Testament authors make their case for who Jesus is, they do it based upon the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament was preparing us to understand who the Christ would be in the fullness of time. If we, if we cut ourselves off from that revelation, then Jesus can really be made out to be whoever we want him to be. He can be a, a great teacher. He can be a, a Jewish revolutionary. But according to the storyline of the Old Testament, he is the Messiah and he is God come in the flesh. So I think that's at least partly what Jesus means here. But again, I don't think he's really pressing this point of Jewish superiority of the Samaritans. He's really saying salvation is from the Jews, but a time is coming when these sort of distinctions are not going to be as important as they once were. Did you notice Jesus twice says the hour is coming? First in verse 21, then again in verse 23. This time he says in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here. What is he talking about? Well, in John's gospel, Jesus' hour, it often refers to his suffering, his sacrificial death on the cross, his glorious resurrection and exaltation. And so Jesus is saying that an hour is coming and is now here when worship will not be uh, focused on a particular place. And that's because of Jesus' death, his resurrection. He's opened access to God. Now worship is not localized in a particular place. It's not fixated on elaborate external forms as it was in the Old Covenant. The prophets looked for a day when God would be worshipped throughout the whole world and that it would be inner, heartfelt worship by his people. So this brings us to the important question of what it means to worship the Father in spirit and truth. This, I think, is the heart of the passage. And though it, it might not seem immediately obvious as we read through this passage, all the details of the conversation connect together. They all lead up to this point. It's easy to, to read this passage and think, okay, there's living water over here, and then there's this discussion about the husbands, and then now we're talking about worship on Mount Gerizim. But there is, I think, a, a connecting tissue that's, that's weaving all of this together. Whether it's the, the living water, the gift of eternal life, the woman's sin, I think what connects it all is that the only way for us to have our hearts fully and finally satisfied with this living water that Jesus offers, we must have our, our sin revealed and taken away, as he does for the woman. But we also must be inwardly renewed to seek the Lord as our true source of joy and satisfaction. In other words, we cannot ultimately enjoy the living waters of eternal life unless we have our, our sin exposed and dealt with, and unless what's broken on the inside is fixed. Unless we get that fixed, we still won't worship God as we ought. We still won't image him and glorify him as we were always created to do. And so Jesus' discussion on worship here is meant to demonstrate how our sin problem, the, the Samaritan woman's sin problem, our own sin problem, 
is really a worship problem. You see, in our sin, we choose and value and prefer other things over God and over His life-giving grace. And so apart from the Father seeking out true worshipers, apart from the Father sending His Son who would seek and save the lost, we wouldn't be willing or able to worship the Father. So apart from God doing what we're unable to do, there would be no true worshipers, no one who worships God in spirit and in truth. So in other words, a change of location is not going to do the trick, right? Whether it's Jerusalem, whether it's Mount Gerizim, whatever place you erect and whatever temple you build, it's not changing the fundamental problem that the whole Old Testament exposes for us, which is even when everything is set up perfectly in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve choose what they ought not. And that's had massive ramifications ever since. And now we who are corrupt and broken, we need something more than a certain place to go to, a certain sacrifice for us to offer. We need our hearts cleansed and renovated from the inside. We need our souls saved from their corruption. The good news of this passage is that God has done what we could not do to forgive our sins, to renew us inwardly so that we might actually worship Him rightly as we ought to. So what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? I think we get a clue in verse 24 with the statement, God is spirit. God is a spiritual being. He doesn't have a body. He's not made up of any physical matter or parts. He's an infinite, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent spirit. He has a, a totally invisible spiritual existence. He's one who's always existed in this spiritual existence as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that being the case, the Lord desires our worship to conform to his spiritual essence. In other words, he's not mainly concerned with outward, ritualistic, external obedience, even though that is important to him, and it was important under the old covenant. He desires the hearts of his people. He desires us to worship him with our spirits. And as I've been suggesting, this is exactly what we're unable to offer him in our sin and our corruption. Heartfelt, sincere, authentic worship of God in our inner person. And so the beauty of Jesus' teaching here is that under the new covenant, with the coming of Jesus in the flesh, we're now able to worship the Lord as he desires, in spirit and in truth. This comes about because of Jesus' work on our behalf dying and rising in the place of sinners, pouring out his Holy Spirit from on high, because Christ has won our redemption, because he has poured out this gift of the Holy Spirit, now we can enjoy inward renewal that transforms our hearts and allows us to truly worship the Lord with our spirits. As one author put it, this gets us to the heart of the Christian faith, that God dwells in the hearts of his people, enabling them to offer worship that is acceptable. And it's worship that's in spirit and in truth, which means we worship him according to his revelation given in Scripture, and especially preeminently beholding him as he's revealed himself in the person of his Son. So spirit and truth worship under the new covenant is worship that's enabled by all the great new covenant promises that have come to pass in Jesus. So we can worship in spirit and truth because Jesus has forgiven all of our sins. 
because his law has been written on our hearts, because his spirit has been poured out and the new age has dawned, because our hearts have been circumcised, because we have a personal, intimate knowledge of God now through his son Jesus. So in all those ways, God has, has made a way for us to, to be true worshipers, where before we had no way of, of making ourselves right before him. But look at verses 25 and 26. Here's where we kind of conclude this, this section. The woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So the woman here brings up the Messiah, and she says, I take her to be saying, okay, you've said some interesting things there. Um, when the Messiah comes, he's going to clear all this stuff up. So the Samaritans, who only accepted the first five books of Moses, their picture of the Messiah was really colored by Deuteronomy 18. And there in Deuteronomy 18, it was prophesied that a, a prophet like Moses would arise, and he would declare to the people all that God had commanded. And so when she's talking here in verse 25, she's saying, when the Messiah comes, he's going to be able to tell us all things. And so he'll He'll clear up all these issues about worship, about where we're supposed to offer sacrifices. And now Jesus announces what has only been implicit up to this point. He says that he, in fact, is the Messiah. And the fact that he's been able to announce to her secret things that no human could know is because he is the one from Deuteronomy 18. He is the Messiah who has come to declare to his people all that God commands. So Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. So we reach the point where Jesus' identity is made clear. Now the question becomes, how will she respond? The question for us becomes, how will we respond when confronted with the identity of Jesus, the Messiah? So we've looked at Jesus' offer of a greater gift. We've seen that this greater gift alone can cure the woman's and our own deeper need. And now this leads to our third point, a better response. When Jesus deals with our sin, when he renews us inwardly through the Holy Spirit so that we rightly worship God from a renewed heart, all of this results in our, our proper, better response, which is eager confession. When God does this in our lives, it results in eager confession. And so we see the, first the woman's response in verses 27 through 30. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So we see here how the woman responds when she's finally confronted face to face in verse 26, with who Jesus is. She leaves her water jar, she goes away, and she begins telling other people what she's witnessed. And so the, the water jar, symbolic of why she was there at the well in the first place to draw water, Jesus said, if you drink that water, you'll be thirsty again. I'm bringing you living water. And we see a response. She leaves the water jar, and she goes into town, Right? She hurries off, she announces to the town people, 
And it's these same people who probably don't have a favorable opinion of her. She announces, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. She's expressing now her faith in Jesus as the Messiah. She demonstrates the, the come and see mentality of those in the gospel who've encountered the Lord. Think about back in chapter one, Jesus tells the disciples to come and see. And then later on, uh, In verse 46, Nathanael says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. So we've got that idea of, Can anything good come out of Nazareth in chapter 1? And Nathanael's told to come and see. Here we see the woman says, Come, come see this man who's told me things that no merely human person could know. But then jumping down to verse 39, we also see the response of the townspeople. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So the people believe based on her testimony. They go out. They're urging him to stay with them. They get him to stay two days. We also see in verse 42, there's this interesting addition. The townspeople say it's, it's no longer because of the woman's testimony, but we have heard and seen for ourselves, and now we've, we've come to accept it on the basis of Jesus' testimony himself. And the passage ends with the amazing confession, which is unparalleled in the Gospels. They said, we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, why would they call him the Savior of the world? Well, if we think about it for very long, we think salvation is, is for the Jews, right? The Samaritans understand that they're considered outsiders by the Jews. But we see here God's kingdom beginning to, to spread outside the boundaries of just Judaism. We see that God is the Savior, not just of the Jews, but of all peoples. And we get here even a, a foretaste in the Samaritan woman and the townspeople repenting and believing. We get a foretaste of what happens later on in the book of Acts. In chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus, in this programmatic statement for the book of Acts, says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. So again, we're dealing with the Spirit there in Acts chapter 1. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and to Samaria and unto the ends of the earth. And so we see there this, this program for how God's kingdom is going to advance in the book of Acts, and it's going to draw in even the Samaritans. And so it's even going to go, the gospel, to the ends of the earth. And so we see this idea of Jesus as the Savior of the world, that he's come to save not just Jews, but he's come to democratize true worship, to democratize the Spirit so that it might be poured out on all people and all kinds of people might be able to worship in spirit and in truth. But why do I call this a better response? Well, notice we can compare here the Samaritan woman to Nicodemus in the last chapter. Nicodemus, a man, a religious leader, one schooled in the law of Israel, we don't know exactly what Nicodemus's response is. He shows up a few other times in the Gospel of John after chapter 3, but it's clear he comes to Jesus by night 
if we never see anything like open confession and acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord. But the Samaritan woman offers a much better response, right? She openly acknowledges him to be the Christ. She, she calls others to come and to see one who is a woman, a Samaritan, one who is uh, an outcast and a sinner. She's the one portrayed here more favorably, I think, than Nicodemus in the last chapter. And she shows what a fitting response is to Jesus as the Messiah. Or we could think about the townspeople here. Their response is similar. They, they believe, they receive the word. In contrast, the book of John talks about how Jesus came to his own, chapter 1, and his own did not receive him. The Jewish leadership throughout the gospel of John are hostile to Jesus. And so we see here the better response involves eager confession. It involves not just heartfelt belief, but also confessing it to those around us, sharing the good news that we've received, wanting it to, to be poured out on more and more people, drawing others into the life that we experience through the Holy Spirit. So as we've seen in this passage, Jesus is the Savior of all, the, all who believe, even sinners, even those who are outcast. He offers lasting satisfaction to his people by opening a way for them to worship and serve the Father truly. And we've seen that in three ways, a greater gift, a deeper need, and a better response. Discerning listeners, you might have noticed I skipped verses 31 through 38. And here's where I want to close us this morning. We're not going to work through all these verses, but between the time when the woman goes off and, and tells the town people, and then they come, and they're, they're coming to Jesus, the disciples show up. And in verses 31 through 38, we hear this dialogue between Jesus and the disciples. And it sounds very similar to many other dialogues we've heard with the woman and with Nicodemus and with other people in John. They finally come back with the food for Jesus, and Jesus says, I have other food that you don't know about. And they're saying, did anyone bring him food? Where did he get food? And so you see, again, they're, they're thinking physically. He think, he's thinking spiritually. And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then Jesus goes on to explain how the harvest is here. He says, in the Old Testament, it was a time of, of sowing, right? It was a time of, of looking forward, of, of, of looking to the coming Messiah. He's saying, now is the day of salvation. Now that I have come, the hour is now here. Now is time for you to reap. Even now, the Samaritans are responding to me. So I think we see here a call for us, those who are believers in Jesus Christ, those who have received him as the Savior of all who believe and have enjoyed lasting satisfaction from him, to go and do likewise. Right, to, to share this good news, to enter into the harvest. So where are you looking for lasting satisfaction this morning? Where are you seeking true contentment and joy? Is it in broken cisterns that cannot hold water? Is it in food or money? Is it in people or power? Is it in politics or escaping through video games. We see here that Jesus offers us here the only true and lasting satisfaction, that he came 
to forgive us of our sins, to, to cure us of our worship problem, and to create in us hearts that long to worship him and serve him truly. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this scripture. We thank you for the truth that Jesus is the Savior of all the world, that he is the one who offers salvation freely and liberally to all who would come. And so we pray that we would come to him as living water, as the one who satisfies our souls forever. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for turning aside to, to broken cisterns, trying to erect idols who can never truly satisfy. And Father, we pray that you would give us an increasing hunger that as this living water wells up in us to eternal life, that that eternal resurrection life that comes into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that that would flow out of us in love to God and in love to one another. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.